weird or good writing. Well, yeah, exactly. Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, the podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. This episode will be the first of two discussions of Ancillary Sword, the second book in Anne Leckie's Imperial Ratch trilogy. This time, Ethan and I talk about the artificial intelligences in Ancillary Sword, the ship, station, and of course Breck herself, and how they all interact. Also, Charles Pesur is back to recommend stories centered around age and aging, and a remembered book from an upcoming guest. We'll start with the artificial intelligences of Ancillary Sword. I remember you saying last time that you really liked that Lucky didn't spend a whole lot of time on sort of the mechanics of artificial intelligence. Right. And you just kind of said, okay, we have artificial intelligence. How do they act? Can How do they, they act? Are, yeah. the, the way in which we learn about the artificial intelligence is seeing them behave rather than having someone talk about it. Yeah. Where I found the most to dig into, I guess, was definitely more in the interpersonal and character relationships between between the people, but especially between, as I said, between Breck and the other AIs. One of the things that I kind of noticed and dug into a little bit more, and it may or may not actually be there, is just how the relationship between Breck and Mercy of Calor changed over the course of the book. At the beginning of the book, it's a little obscure because Mercy of Calor is being manipulated. Right. But, I mean, the way that ships act when they're manipulated by Manai is somewhat ludicrous, but I guess you need to have some way to figure it out. So basically, they have a delay in their in their communication. Well, and there are certain things that they kind of can't say, but Breck can read into silences. Yeah, but the idea that that the super powerful artificial intelligence doesn't have the cognitive overhead to <laughs> handle a little lie is a little hard to swallow. But one way or another, Breck is able to sort of get a handle on the fact that somebody's behaving a little bit oddly. After that's taken care of. I felt there was kind of a change in the relationship where they became closer, basically. Mm-hmm. So it starts out with Breck asking for information from Mercy of Calor or Mercy of Calor sharing with Breck the, uh, some of the feeds that she has available to her about what, what's going on with her crew and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. By towards the end, it gets to a situation where Breck's not asking anymore and Mercy of Calor is not offering. It's just uh, basically Breck has access right. to what Mercy of Calor has access to. Right. She just puts her awareness where she wants. She can't be aware of everything, but right. when she decides what she wants to be aware of. She just does it, yeah. Which is really weird if you think of these people as two individuals. And it's almost as if Breck is co-opting Mercy of Calor. That's a reading I had at the time that I've since revised because I kind of assumed at the time that the Justice AIs were more powerful, I guess, in some way, than the Mercy AIs, which turned out to be a false assumption. I believe it's safe to say. Mm-hmm. But it was, kind of, but it is nonetheless kind of weird. It is weird that it would be happening, but also kind of natural that it would be happening. No, both of them are weird. Weird that, it, that that could start to happen to two characters in a book, that they basically start to merge, kind of. Okay. Because they're both pretty important characters, mm-hmm. at least earlier on in the book, and Mercy of Calor kind of gets subsumed for a little while. Mm-hmm. But also weird that it would seem normal, um, which probably says something about the way that that I or we think about how artificial intelligences are. I guess right. Still, we still we're not really thinking of them thinking of them as individuals, right? It's perfectly normal if somebody if they just kind of merge. Well, but isn't it kind of? Uh, <laughs> In order for me to extend my 
awareness to someone else. Like, I have to do it in all sorts of clunky ways, right? I have to, like, be on the phone with them and have them tell me what they're seeing or something like that. Oh, right. Right? Yeah. I, I can't just, like, telepathically connect to someone. Yeah. If Breck and Caller can, and, like, at first, you know, I mean, this is kind of a weird thing, but, like, at first they have to go through protocols, but then they start to figure out, well, rather than you making this request and then this request and then this request, why can't I just send you, like, this is exactly what I want. Yeah, I know. I think that's fair. I don't think it's weird that it is something that's possible, but it's but it's weird that it doesn't seem weird, I guess, um, to me. Weird or good writing? Well, yeah, exactly. We're going to expand now to some of the other AIs in Ancillary Sword. Yeah, so they're very different, right? So you've got your... You've got your Breck, you've got your Station, and you've got your Mercy of Calor. I mean, we spend the first part of the book with Mercy of Calor and Breck. And Station's different, right? Yeah. I guess that's a thing. Stations are always, stations are different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it takes a while to kind of work out what's what's going on with Station, but it's very concerned with its inhabitants. It's very, I guess, oversensitive in some ways, you might say. Although maybe that is a product of its current condition. Also, it doesn't have a captain figure, right? Mm-hmm. Like, ships have a focus. Yeah. And I think that that gives them less to worry about, right? Like, less existential crisis, because as long as my captain's happy, I'm happy. Right. Kind of a yeah. thing. And stations... Whereas stations are very focused on their inhabitants, and you can't, you just can't keep all those people safe. Right. I want to keep all of my inhabitants safe and happy, and also keep myself sort of whole and coherent. Right. And yeah, that's a that is a very different problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think they they make the point about like when when Ruag is doing her abuse, she's gotta find places that station can't watch and supervise. Mm-hmm. Yep, which happens to be the undergarden. Right. There's also a question of why the undergarden is like the undergarden. Why does station let that let that happen? I mean the answer is basically a psychological answer, which is kind of interesting. It's like the Whatever the damage is, and I don't remember what the original what the original damage in the underground yeah. was. Yeah, there's but damage. Whatever but... the damage is, it is too much to fix, and so it's been just kind of walled off. And mm-hmm. Station has this dissatisfaction. So, like Breck speculates that on the one hand, Station is bothered that it's not whole, and on the other hand, it and and also is bothered that people are like sneaking into places that are supposed to be walled off, but also. Station probably likes that there are people living in places that Station is. But, I mean, the, the basic premise is that Station had this damage that was done and then could not be fixed. But that physical damage also means that Station is behaving erratically. Right. And part of that erratic behavior is, well, not really erratic behavior, is that Station wants, likes to have people in that part of the Station, more or less, and therefore kind of facilitates the, the uh, existence of this underground community there. But also, like, Station is not telling things to its administrator that it would normally... Well, Station's pissed to. off, right? Because, right. I mean, how is something not fixable like this? That's ridiculous. <laughs> right. Like, it's not just that Station would like to have somebody living in the Undergarden. It's also that Station is mad at the people who are not in the Undergarden. Right. And who are not fixing it. And is therefore being uncooperative to folks who could really use its cooperation. Yeah. With a side effect that some of Station's citizens are being hurt in ways that they wouldn't be if there was a smoothly functioning relationship between Station and its administrator. And I don't know if we want to go there, but it's really interesting to notice that the concept of privacy 
has been basically dispensed with in a more or less paternalistic and seemingly benevolent way on any ratch station. Yes, absolutely. Right? Like the consequence of lack of privacy on a ratch station is that people can't abuse other people. Yep. And that people are kind of like kind of every need is catered to to some extent. Right. But also that there is it's interesting that there is no effective privacy from station, but there is an expected privacy. Right. Where the station knows everything that happens, but the station does not talk about what happened. And I don't remember if we see station, but we certainly see that Breck and Mercy of Caller are very good at managing the relationships of their officers. Because again, there's no privacy on a ship either. But the ship can kind of step in to one of its lieutenants and say, hey, there's a problem here. Like, either you need to fix your behavior or you need to talk to your subordinate in order to fix their behavior. And so presumably Station can do the same kind of thing. And Station can say, okay, folks blow off steam and they're arguing or this relationship is becoming kind of unhealthy and I can speak to them. And if I need to, I can speak to other people. Right. Yep, absolutely. And Station actually gets along fairly well with people who are aligned with it in, in that sense. I mean, it's quite well aligned with Administrator Salar, I think. Except but not when with... it comes to her daughter, who's the one that Rogged is abusing. Yeah, and and the explanation for that was kind of, I don't know, seems a little bit opaque. Uh, do you recall that? I So I actually reread that scene in preparation, and I think oh, okay. that what's going on is that Station doesn't have clear confirmation because Rog does her terrible things where Station can't observe. But, mm -hmm. like, Solar's daughter comes home with injuries, and Station is basically accepting the explanation for those injuries and not raising a red flag anywhere. And it seems like that is because Station knows that Solar is trying to court Fosif, Ruach's mother, through, yeah. like, right? So, like, there's power plays going on and Station doesn't have firm evidence. And why that is more important than Solar's daughter being healthy and in a better relationship, I don't quite, like, it was, it, that was a little unclear. But. I think I might have read that a little bit differently. Okay. In that, well, it seemed to me like the Station had this has this imperative to kind of not blab about stuff. It finds other ways, basically, to, to fix these problems. Like, it uh, will arrange for somebody to be in a certain place at a certain time so that they kind of see enough of something to get an idea. Yeah, it hasn't been going out of its way to do that for Administrator Salar. Yeah, I didn't really kind of buy the explanation about why that was happening. It might have been yeah. just a plot device. I don't know. I think the explanation was given, much like you said, that Station A wasn't that sure, and B has this imperative not to not to directly tell people about these types of things right. because of the privacy thing, and also was sort of resentful. <laughs> yeah. So, but it also does seem the station is relatively is relatively aligned with Solar. I mean, the station has serious issues, but is relatively aligned with Solar, but is not at all really, I think, happy about the governor, right? Right, right. My memory is a lot of that is because the governor is a political, in the worst sense of the word, creature. Yeah. Not interested in the well-being of, of the folks there. Yeah, it's simply not aligned with the station. Which kind of makes, like, station and the other AIs the moral compass of ancillary and i think that i think it's safe to say that in many ways the ai's like to the extent that there's a moral compass and perspective on the ratch empire 
<laughs> the ways that, that we, the reader, are supposed to perceive them. I feel yeah, like AIs are, are pretty closely aligned to that. Yeah, that's true. I mean, that, that isn't, yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that, that they have this kind of clarity, this moral clarity that the, the people don't really have. Or, well, some of them do. Breck does and Station does. Mercy of Calor doesn't seem to really weigh in that much. Although Mercy of Calor cares about its people. Right. Which aren't, there aren't very many of them. Right. Um, and it cares about Breck, certainly, but doesn't really have much to say about the larger issues at play. Right. Whereas Breck and Station clearly have um, have feelings about these things. That is interesting. They are this kind of moral compass, although the station is a bit broken, right? So it doesn't always point the right direction, maybe, but right. it's still pretty, still has this clarity. Yeah. yeah, I hadn't thought about that. It's very true. Very interesting. I wonder if all ships are like that. Maybe we'll find out in the next book. <laughs> I did want to talk about Sword of Atagaris. What an idiot. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So apparently not AI, all AIs have moral clarity or are very smart. This this sword is like just a moron and kills the Presker translator and then sulks for the rest of the book. Uh-huh. <laughs> How silly is that? So that was great. I thought that was that was interesting. Well, and also sort of a reflection of a reflection of his captain. The moral compass notion and the notion of like ships who are aligned with their captains and how station gets along with the administrator, but not as much the governor. It seems to me that the implication, the contrast that's being drawn fairly strongly is that there are people who are basically decent and interested in truth, justice, and the Bradshaw way, to borrow a phrase. Mm-hmm basically good people who would like to see good things done. And then there are folks who are interested in getting their own influence and power and encouraging that and politics. And like Fosif Dench is the civilian who exemplifies that. And the governor and Captain Hetness are the two kind of administrators and folks in power. They're not good, right? There's there's not a whole lot mm-hmm, of yeah. moral gray in Ancillary Sword, I feel like. Yeah, I guess I would say, right. I mean, the governor's kind of gray, I think. But is very very much a politician. Yeah, yeah. you're right. It, there's there's more gray in in ancillary mercy, I guess. But and in general, like if you're if you're playing politics, that's a bad thing. Well, so says someone who's not interested in politics, I guess. <laughs> well, in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It tends to be a negative, or it right. turns out badly. <laughs> like it is never the case that someone is trading influence because they can therefore get some good outcome to happen. Right, like. Politics in in the book is not the art of the possible. It is instead a way to enrich yourself at the expense of others. Yeah, it's very much a yeah the politics of a mature empire that is very self seeking. And and that was kind of the thing when I was talking about the AIs as as moral compass. I feel like a lot of that is the ways the AIs respond to people, or at least the non sort of targets silly AI respond to people, <laughs> is a pretty direct reflection of. Do you play politics, or are you a basically decent person who's trying to do right for those around you and those you're responsible for? Which I think are kind of the two options. Yeah, sure. Or you could be like Mercy of Ilvis and just hang out in the outer rim of the system while all this is going on. Right. <laughs> because you don't want anything to do with it. <laughs> right. Like, <laughs> you can almost feel the author. Like, well, I might. At some point later on, like I haven't fully mapped out my plot, and I might at some point later on need to add an extra complication to or wrinkle or like some new player to things. So let me leave Mercy of Illness out there, just kind of in case to be one more complication, possible complication. 
Yeah, and then and then Mercedes remains out there for the entirety of the third book as well. Right. <laughs> just um, in just in case. Yeah. Well, like you've got to have an extra ship, just cause. I think it's I think it's great. I think it's wonderful that a that a ship would just be smart enough to stay the heck out of the way. Now Charles Pesur is back with short story recommendations. Links will be in the show notes. Winter is coming, dear listeners, and as summer releases its hand from our collective throats and autumn begins to set in, I am reminded of the turning of the seasons and the turning of the years and the slow, unstoppable march toward death. And with that cheery thought in mind, I have some speculative short fiction recommendations for you today surrounding the theme of age and aging. We're going to start in the springtime of youth and work our way forward until we hit the winter of old age. And we start with a story from Tor.com's May Offerings, The Pigeon Summer by Britt Mandello. And this story involves the specific period in time between high school and college, um, between sort of being a dependent on one's parents and in many ways being property of one's parents and being a uh, considered in the eyes of the law, at least, an adult. And it's a very loaded time for characters like the one in the story who is queer, who does not really get on with their parents, and who sees this transition as this hopeful time, as an escape, as as a push towards something better. It is, however, also a push into something completely unknown, and for some, like the character's best friend, it becomes something that's a becomes too much. And the story is about how the main character deals with the loss of their friend around the loss of their expectations. They had hoped to escape to this this future where they were free with their friend, where they would help each other, where there would be support, where there would be love. And the sudden loss of that dominates the story and makes it emotionally resonant and just very powerful. Plus, it is probably the most compelling pigeon drama I have ever read in a speculative fiction piece. So it has that going for it, too, and it's just very good. Uh, Moving forward a little bit, we're into June 2016's uh, Year of the Superhero Stories from the Book Smugglers and Kid Dark Against the Machine by Tansy Rayner Roberts. Uh, This is actually a kind of sequel to another superhero story, Cookie Cutter Superhero, which appeared in Kaleidoscope which is a great collection, and it was a very good story, and this one sort of builds a little on that world, but with an entirely different cast. This one looks at a sidekick, or a former sidekick, who has grown up in the shadow of what has gone before, who has run away from the superhero life in many ways, and who is dealing with his feelings surrounding that, and in many ways about having missed out on a real childhood, because he was picked to be a superhero, and specifically to be a child superhero, to be in that role and have so much pressure to perform, and this larger-than-life thing. He's an orphan, and he sort of finds that he has a family and then has to face that that all can be taken away. The world-building in this one continues to be excellent and continues the work that the original story did. In terms of age and aging, it's looking at this um, transition, again, from child's to adulthood, but it pushes it past farther, where there's like this missing childhood involved. The main character is trying to think about and trying to figure out his own feelings about that, and trying to feel normal while being someone who's not 
while being in many ways still a superhero and still having that inside him, and trying to help another young person deal with his own problems regarding that. And it's another very complicated story that works very well uh, around age and aging, showing these different characters at different moments, showing even older ones, um, the, the people who were superheroes when this character was the sidekick, and how everyone has aged and how they've had to deal with what has happened to them. It's a very rich story, and again, one that you should definitely check out. Moving a bit forward in age, and probably the most, at surface level, controversial of, of these picks as to how it deals with age and aging comes from the Sockdologer Summer 2016 issue and is Demon Clown Diary by Shane Garrity. Now, this story isn't about aging per se, but it is about a character who is older and dealing with the the professional life, dealing with having done a lot and feeling like the newer generation is coming up to usurp him and sort of like cast him down. He is a demon clown who sort of plays with the classic tropes of that, has done a lot of groundbreaking work but is older now, and people see him as washed up, as past the curve. And there are new people coming through that seem to be much more popular who are doing more interesting things, only the story looks at inspiration. It looks at age in a way that challenges when people should be stepping aside. Sort of like challenging the idea that age is a limitation, that people who've been through a lot have nothing to offer, or that they can't understand the younger generations. and. In that way, it's a very weird, I mean, it's a, a kind of violent and kind of strange and kind of horror piece, but it's also very human in how it looks at occupation and how it looks at um, entertainment and how it looks at innovation and where those things can come from. And it's bizarre to think that this story has a lot to say about those subjects, but it does, and it's very much worth checking out to read into it for that. Because I feel, at least, like the story does capture a lot uh, about aging, about looking back and experiencing a midlife crisis, which makes it the middle recommendation in today's things. And moving on, we have a story that comes from Strange Horizons June offerings, and that is Lichen Stone Glass and Plastic by Jose Pablo Iriarte. And this story, again, this, the, the main character is older still than the one in the last one, although um, maybe not strictly speaking, because demon clowns as opposed to humans, but we're just going to say reads older than in the last one. This is a man who has in many ways done the right thing in, in terms of the immigrant story, has, has immigrated to the U.S., has worked very hard, has put his kids through school, has succeeded in many ways in that regard, and yet who finds himself failed by the system at large, still struggling to make money, still struggling to find support, still left out of most of the things that would make him more comfortable as he approaches older age, and especially because his wife is suffering from uh, dementia, is not all there, and requires a nurse to be present at all times. So he's living in this very threatened way in a sense. He's living without security, 
having to sort of put himself through more and more stress, trying to reach stability, and not quite being able to trust the system because it's not exactly fair to him. And as he's doing this, he finds these murals that enter him into these moments of another person's life and enter him into the depth of that and enter him into their deaths, ultimately. And he becomes almost obsessed with these murals. He, he finds them more around and he takes greater and greater risks to, to find them and to find who's responsible for them. And the reasoning that he has for that is a beautiful, beautiful thing and makes the story like one of my favorite of the year. And the way that it approaches age and his story of aging in particular as something where there is great loss, yes, but there is also hope and there is also struggle and there is also love and having that be this, this thing that keeps him going and allows him to provide and allows him to see the joy that's still out there and do things that increase that. It's a very touching story and one that looks at characters looking back and seeing an awful lot of hardship and an awful lot of loss and an awful lot of struggle, but still looking with hope forward and seeing what can still happen. As we pull into the final recommendation, uh, we reach sort of the oldest point it's also the oldest story that I'm talking about. It comes from January's uh, Amazing Apex 80, and it is The Tomato Thief by Ursula Vernon. And this story is delightful. I mean, it's an older character in Grandma Harkin who is dealing with not being quite as self-sufficient as she was like. And not just self-sufficient, because she can do most things around there, but not quite as able to keep up with what she was able to do in the past. Having to deal with limited functions, having to deal with being slower, having to deal with being more tired, with things being more difficult, and having to deal with perhaps having to think about changing her role in the events that she participates in. She's always been very active, always gone out and solved the problem, sort of taken them in her hands and slapped them around a bit, and they were good but is starting to feel that she can't do that anymore, that physically she's not able, that it's too difficult to maintain, and if she slips up, the repercussions of that would be great indeed. And so thinking about that, thinking about having to transition into a part of her life when she's more teacher than actor, when she's being more of a support rather than a main character is a very interesting time because it looks at how people see those things. It's a retirement of sorts, but it's not one that requires her to stop doing what she's good at or stop doing what she loves. She still will feel, or the, the feeling in the story is as she goes, she's still incredibly competent. She's still able to do a great many things, but she does see that there is value in perhaps changing how she views teaching, changing how she views cohabitation or accepting help. And those things are, are, are touching, and they do move the story forward. And to me, at least, it's a story very much concerned with growing old and having to find ways to, to still be relevant despite the limitations that age brings. So there you have it. Those are five stories that I feel are about age and aging that move from fairly young ages to fairly old ages and exemplify very 
strong examples of speculative fiction. So I um, hope you enjoyed them. Thank you. And finally, one of the upcoming Cabbages and Kings guests will be Jennifer Marie Brissett, the author of Elysium. Here is her memory of a significant book to close the episode. Oh my god. I was like, like I said, oh no, there's so many books. I mean, The Rise of Watching God by Jordan Hudson. Um, talk about an epic book. It's got, it's got a flood scene in there, man. It's got, <laughs> it's just this amazing book that blew my mind as a young person, and it is one of the very few books that I've maybe read three or four times. She's just an amazing author, and she just changed my life as a young person, long before science fiction, long before the bookstore, long before any of that stuff. She really blew my little socks off, because it was written well, and, and there were parts of it that were really funny, but it was just episodic. It just felt big, you know, like you just like these three big sections of it almost like you know i i want to say like deuteronomy or something like in the you know it's just i have these big scenes and it's all about this woman sort of discovering herself um just i guess that's the book i would pick out you know off the top of my head thanks for listening to cabbages and kings please let me know what you think of the show on the website cabbagesandkings.audio there's a feedback form and also a page if you'd like to be on the show or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. I'm on Twitter at J. Sutton Morse. The show is on Twitter at KingCabbageCast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, what I can do to make the show better. The website also has an occasional blog, my running tweets on books I'm reading, and importantly, a link to the RSS feed for this show, which you can also find on iTunes and wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.